0: He's quite a political writer, and um, he's written about uh, many different topics, but most currently writing on a project called The Death of Politics of Crime, which is concerned, I think, with the, the, the different dimensions of the relationship between crime and control and democratic politics. So uh, his research like his teaching talks both at crime, criminal justice and, and the sort of political framework within which that takes place. Uh, his presentation today is called the Private Security and Regulatory Space in Search of the Public Interest. Um, uh, okay, um, thank you uh, very much. Uh, let me first just echo the thanks to my colleagues for both for the invitation and for your um, very kind and generous um, hospitality. Um, it's been a long cherished ambition of mine to come to India, so this is far good an opportunity to, to pass up. Um, before I start, I should also um, just correct a couple of um, potentially um, misleading impressions. Um, Caroline, in her introduction this morning, said I was the only member of our party who could claim to be a lawyer. And I kind of feel a, a, a complete confession is required at this point. Um, the complete confession is that I have a 28-year-old law degree. Um, And as I've discovered in life, there's few things more useless than a neglected old law degree. Um, So I was once taught law. Um, So that that gave the impression I was rather closer to your concerns than I in fact um, 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 are. The other other misimpression I want to clear up is I appear to have the title and and a paper which is the most remote from the stated um, objectives of this conference, um, as was alluded to at the outset. um, so the, impression I, the, the misleading impression I want to clear up here, just by way of starting, is to suggest a number of reasons why it's not as remote as it might at first seem. And I think there are three. Um, firstly, um, it seems to me, and a number of other people who work on cr- criminal justice and policing these days, that you really don't do adequacy to the world in which we live if you just study the processes of state ordering and justice. In other words, in many, many jurisdictions across the world, of which mine is one, and I, I'd rather suspect yours is another... Policing, protection, security, justice is not just a concern of state institutions, but is increasingly a concern of actors whose services are purchased through through mechanisms of market exchange. Um, and I think that is incumbent on us therefore to think not only about the relationship of not only about state and non state justice, but also increasingly about the enmeshing of public and private um, policing and justice systems. Um, the, the, second, the, the second reason we're thinking this is closer than you might, you might first imagine to the concerns of the conference is that, the, particularly the way I want to think about it, the private security raises a series of issues to do with regulation, to do with legal reform, um, of a similar kind to those that one would engage in if one's thinking about how you go about rectifying questions of um, failure and wrongdoing inside state criminal justice system. And thirdly, um, it strikes me... Um, that that what private security does is raise very explicitly, at least if you think about it properly, um, raise very explicitly a set of questions um, that are sometimes buried in discussions of state criminal justice. And these are a set of questions basically about distributional justice, about the idea and the problem of how the benefits and burdens of ordering and policing and justice systems actually get distributed as um, as between individuals and groups and um, in what kind of relationship to the risk that different individuals and groups um, differentially um, face. Um, the other thing I just want to say, by way of a preferatory remark, and I'm not, um, I'm, I'm not the respondent, I'm going to be my own respondent, that's, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> that's just not the thing you do, is it? Um, but it does it strike me sitting there, that the, the, one, the one thing that we are all illustrating um, is different stages of the empirical research process. Um, so Caroline is someone who's deep in the middle of it, um, Um, Alpha is someone who's trying to get a project off the ground. I'm about to give you a paper which is, in a sense, uh, to some extent, about a project that I've just completed on the market for security products and services, but also an attempt to kind of use that research to kind of revisit an old debate and to think about it hopefully in some new ways. Um, And that old debate um, is a debate about the regulation of the private security industry. Um, So that's what I want to talk to you about um, today. um, it doesn't need to, need to me to labour the point that the um, private security in all its various guises, from guarded, guarded labouring through to um, through to technologies, through to its involvement in various forms of security policing, is a fast-growing industry. Um, I tried to do a, um, a little bit of background research on private security in, Indi- in India, to which. a I discovered two things. And one, that there's almost nothing written about private security in, Indi- in, in, in India. So if, if anybody is if searching around for a research project in the room, um, come and talk to me afterwards. Um, um, the, I also managed to discover that to the, the, the best estimate is there are five million people in this country working in the private security industry um, in various um, guises. Um, and private security brings to its customers a number of stated advantages in terms of expertise, in terms of dedicated service, Um in terms of accountability to customers, but also, in my judgment, raises a series of what you might call public interest considerations. In other words, the more that the market for policing becomes a market, the more that there is a risk that resources are distributed in inverse relationship to people's actual um, vulnerability to victimization. The more there is a risk that the the market, private markets and security chip away at the kind of collective commitments to collectively, as it were, funding and providing security um, as a public good. I mean, The more that you think about private security in these ways, the more it acquires um, what John Dewey fantastically called a public capacity. In other words, it becomes a legitimate interest of all citizens, not merely of those who engage in the buying and selling of goods inside that industry. So the question that we've been forced to revisit on the basis of the research that I'll mention briefly is how can you better align on the assumption that it's not going to go away and there may be even no good normative reasons why you would entirely want private security to go away, Given that it's here to say how can you better align the private security industry with considerations of the public interest? And the reason for thinking about this as a kind of regulatory question was our dissatisfaction with the way in which private security regulation actually gets discussed um, in the existing literature. Um, now, in that literature, um, we think you can find two, um, two dominant models for the sake of simplicity, one of which we call the idea of cleansing markets, the other one which seeks to communalise um, markets – I'll say more about these um, in a small while. Um, For our point of view, um, what these two, in many ways, very different models share in common, is a kind of uh, a set of standard neoclassical assumptions about how markets for security work. In other words, they assume that people who are buying and selling security goods are, as they would for any other market, um, uh, rational, calculating, egoistic, um, seekers after their own interests, who are somehow lifted from any kind of moral or political or social or cultural context, which may in some way shape the ways in which they behave in those markets and indeed their inclination to enter or not enter those markets um, in the first place. Our research, and the hour here is myself and um, my co-author who works at the University of York, Um, our respective research over different projects over recent years has led us um, to challenge this view Because both of our our studies of private security in the UK have demonstrated that this, in fact, is a market that, in all kinds of ways, is shot through with moral and political considerations of various kinds. In other words, when people think about whether or not to buy security, They are not solely thinking about, can I afford this? Will it offer me protection? But in some, their minds are also um, full of a series of considerations to do with the relationship between the potential (laughs) purchase of this particular product, say a GPS tracker or a a hired guard, and a series of other things about which they care, which is to do with relationships of mutual trust, of privacy, of solidarity, of conceptions of community, um, and so forth. So forth. I'm trying to put my glasses on because I can't read the thing I wrote about ten minutes ago. Yeah. In other words, is it that the security markets are a market in which um, market and non-market considera- considerations are always, in some sense, colliding, and where the, the decisions to purchase p- products are always, in some sense, shaped by non-market values. Furthermore, that specifically in relation to the security industry, we are talking about a market where, in which the players involved are, in some sense, deeply themselves deeply embedded in long-standing processes of state building in which the idea that that security is delivered um, equally to all, what we call the modern modern democratic promise of security, is somehow also imbued in people who are trying to seek to sell or buy additional alternative forms of provision. Now thinking about that security in those terms, as it were, as a moral economy, has led us to approach the question of regulation um, in a slightly different way and to try and find ways of thinking about how to harness those non-market values in the way in which um, uh, security, the private security industry is regulated. In other words, how can we, how can we regulate security in ways that honours these plurality of understandings that shape the market? Um, a, a, a factor which seems to me that to lead you to, towards a form of regulation which isn't about just trying to control for market failure, for producing efficiency, to, to dealing with just the quality of goods, but also trying to protect preserve and give expression to and protect the range of non-market otherwise other words, political and social values that the security industry impinges on. Furthermore, just by way of introduction, it seems to me that the other thing we've been trying to do is to try and um, connect um, the, the debate that currently takes place about private security regulation to a much wider, and I've discovered huge and sometimes rather tedious literature on regulation, um, um, More, more broadly conceived. Um, but from that literature, we've taken three things um, which we want to build into the model that we're trying to develop. Um, firstly, the now close to being axiomatic claim that regulation is decentered. In other words, that a model of regulation which just assumes that the state is a regulator and exists in a kind of command and control relationship with the, 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 um, the industry or the companies they're trying to regulate um, has long since been jettisoned in favour of a much broader notion of regulatory space which one encompasses a whole range of different state and non-state actors um, in the regulatory process and doesn't think the regulatory relationship just goes one way, in other words, from the state to to the market. Secondly, we've taken on board the idea that there is no single regulatory template which you can kind of carry around with you and just plonk down on any market activity you want to regulate. But you need to tailor um, regulatory strategies and tools to the peculiarities of the market you're trying to understand and um, control. And secondly, that any regulatory activity requires some clar thirdly sorry requires some clarity as to the goals and values of, of regulation in other words, you one needs to provide a kind of clear and cogent answer to the question why are you trying to regulate this industry and for what purpose now it 's um, it's with that in mind um, uh, that I want to both talk about two existing models of regulation um, as a kind of ground clearing exercise as a prelude to trying to um, Uh, introduce and kind of um, articulate the merits of, shall I say um, our third preferred alternative. Um, Now the reason I don't have a powerpoint um, is for all the reasons to do with technological failure that you've just had illustrated to you and because um, uh, we've achieved a remarkable feat of, of reducing a 10,000-word paper to one, one table, which you can all find on page 94. Um, so I'm just going to spend the next 10 minutes basically elaborating on that table, and if you prefer to have some notes to follow, um, that's the place to look. Right, the default model um, in, the, in, the, in the discussion of private security regulation, we have redescribed, I should make it clear, that these are our terms, not the terms of the, the people associated with these models. Um, described as, as as trying to cleanse markets. Um, this is very much the default position in the literature. As I've stated already, it rests upon a series of neoclassical assumptions to do with the fact that, that buyers and sellers voluntarily enter markets, um, have, 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 have information available, take rational calculating decisions, and so on and so forth. Um, and that the problems, and that, as it were, the public interest issues that arise in relation to markets occur... Um, uh, Um, insofar as the the, the security market doesn't operate in those ways. Um, And three particular problems have articulated within this model um, which a a system of regulation has to deal with. Um, Firstly, the the widespread recognition that security is a grudge purchase, um, by which I mean, and we've we've found this in our research as well and tried to deepen our understanding of it, that that people don't don't buy security in the way that they buy clothes. (laughs) That security is... the security is a, is a form of consumption that people are, in some sense, dragged to, sometimes by the stipulations of insurance companies, sometimes by health and safety regulation, sometimes by the experience of victimisation, which they don't want to be repeated. Um, and that, that, gr- that, that, that grudging nature of purchase creates an industry, and this is particularly acute in the guarded, uh, the, um, the, the guarded um, security sector, um, in which there's a deep reluctance to believe that you can purchase, pay more for more quality. And a market which is extremely price sensitive, which makes it for the people who are selling those goods extremely cutthroat um, and competitive. Um, this, the argument runs, tends to generate an industry with fairly low standards, with fairly poor staff, with, recruit, with, with, with low pay, with, with uh, a great deal of churn, and so on and so forth. Um, and this leaves the mo- market open to what the British scholar Mark uh, Button calls deviant influences. In other words, a whole series of, of kind of, of um, recurring problems to do with malpractice, fraud, corruption, false arrest, poor training, and so on and so forth, um, um, which have now become um, recurrent findings of anyone who does work on private security. Now, the solution to this problem inside the cleansing model is firstly, it's interesting to note, focused on sellers, not buyers, a point to which I concern, um, and does um, uh, uh, cleave to that assumption about regulation which I, um, I, I previously just indicated was somehow now considered rather um, antiquated. In other words, this is a kind of, kind of state-centred solution. Um, the cleansing model continues to operate on the idea that the state is the principal regulator and through a series of command and control, basically through the issuing of rules, um, that it can bring the industry into line. Um, and the particular form this has taken across increasing parts of the world in recent decades has been the introduction of state licensing systems. In other words, it says, if you as an individual or you as a company want to operate as a private security um, industry, you need to obtain a licence from the state and therefore you need to meet certain minimum requirements in terms of training of staff, in terms of criminal record background checks and so on and so forth. Um, And through these means, the industry can be cleansed, hence our title, um, of its deviant um, operators. Now, um, with that in mind, what, what those working in the, in the cleansing tradition, if you like, have done in, in recent years is, is two things, really. One, to kind of do a kind of collation job, to look around the world and just compare and contrast different kinds of licensing regimes. And as I note in the paper, there's a recent UN document which has kind of brought all this stuff together. Um, and secondly, to kind of to go through the, those existing regimes and try to identify what you might, might call forms of best practice and then uh, then try and um, generate models of regulation on that basis. But that that regulatory model always um, takes the the similar kind of form. In other words, to try and regulate just enough to cleanse the industry of its deviant influences, but not so much that it becomes an excessive um, regulatory um, burden. Now, in all kinds of ways... um, um, this is a valuable way of thinking about the regulation of the industry. It's no part of our case to say that somehow that this, that somehow licensing is, no, it had, doesn't have its place, needs to be jettisoned. Um, um, there's also some evidence it does work. That, you know, it, does, it does exercise a kind of cleansing function if you get effective state licensing systems in place. But nonetheless, there are some limits, and I'll briefly just mention three. Firstly, within the cleansing model, there is, there is almost no attention paid to the kind of distributional issues involved in the, uh, in the um, emergence of private security, um, nor, of the kind of, nor, nor of the kind of relationship that you might want... And any attention to the relationship between private security and the practices and values of democracy. In other words, regulation here, it's about correcting for market failure um, and nothing else. Secondly, as mentioned, it's all very centred and rule-based. In other words, so, so if you think about regulation as a kind of space involving a number of actors, then the cleansing model doesn't mobilise many of those actors in the regulatory process, um, and thirdly, it's very conservative. I suppose it depends on your point of view whether you think this is a good thing or a less good thing. Um, by which I mean that it's kind of stated reform agenda is to find the kind of best, the best that's currently happening somewhere in the world, and to try and spread it, as if the best that we can hope for in social and political life is the best that we can currently identify in some place um, in the world. Right. Secondly, and we're now in the middle of the table. Um, what we call here the communalising model um, also rests on a series of neoclassical assumptions about how market works, but in almost every other respect, it differs from the cleansing model. Um, it differs in the following way. Firstly, it is focused on problems of distribution. It, secondly, it seeks to empower buyers rather than curbing sellers. Thirdly, it's decentered radically decentered in the way I'll demonstrate shortly. Um, thirdly, it brings questions of democracy, and in particular the attempt to involve Local communities in deliberative, democratic practice around how security is delivered makes that central to the business of regulating security. Fifthly, when you start saying fifthly, lists are getting too long, aren't they? But anyway, no, I'm nearly finished. Um, it, 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 it's not conservative, far from it, but is in, engaged in the practice of trying to radically realign the relationship between states and markets. And finally, um, it forms part of a much wider conceptual framework um, which has become known as nodal governance, um, through which you need to understand the particular regulatory strategy which is emerges um, here. Um, this requires me to spend two minutes on nodal governance. Um, nodal governance is a, is a body of work in the security literature um, associated principally with Clifford Shearing of the University of Cape Town and many of his uh, other colleagues, um, who in the 1990s and 2000s really made the, the following claims. Firstly, they made an empirical claim um, to the effect that if you're studying policing and security, you should no longer assume that the state is the major player in the game. Um, And in particular, um, either in providing security or regulating it. um, And certainly you should no longer treat that as somehow a starting assumption for doing research or thinking about um, uh, any kind of policing and security issue. But should instead um, treat that as an empirical question. In other words, in any particular jurisdiction, you should just damn well find out um, who are the major players and providers in any particular um, nexus. And in this context, these Shearing and his colleagues become particularly interested in what they call nodes, by which they mean quite small um, locations. They could be shopping malls or leisure complexes or gated communities or universities, um, all of which are in some sense now in in the business of of sourcing or providing or regulating their own forms of security, hence the term nodal governance. Now, on top of that principally descriptive claim about how the world is, rests a kind of normative claim that no, forms of nodal security are in some sense better for the, the denizens of particular nodes than old-fashioned forms of state-centred um, security. And this all rests on a kind of, um, a kind of borrowing of the kind of Hayekian... The, the, well, let's not put that so familiarly. Um, the critique made by the Austrian economist Friedrich Hayek of um, states as opposed to markets. And Hayek's claim was that remote state officials lack the knowledge and the ability to, to discover the knowledge to be able to respond um, effectively to the needs of individuals and communities. And this can be done much better through the mechanism of markets and prices and so on and so forth. And the, ex- the extension of this that the Noble Governance Series make is that those operating within particular nodes are much better able to, to articulate and understand and source their own forms of security um, than... Um, than simply relying upon remote bureaucratic organisations of the state. Now, the problem that arises in this context um, is that that form of nodal kind of decentered centered security, um, as Shearing and Bailey point out, actually generate a whole series of, of unequal distributions. In other words, the, 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 the well-financed, well-to-do nodes with large amounts of social and political capital are able in this world to generate for themselves much greater forms of protection than, for example, poor communities. Now the solution um, that one finds within this this form of regulation is not, as neoliberals would have it, to treat this as just a natural order of things, or as many liberals and social democrats would try to do, to just try and reassert the authority of the state over the world of of policing and security, but instead to empower buyers. (laughs) In other words, to try and find a way of communalising security markets so that they can meet the needs of poor as well as rich communities. A particular mechanism that Shearing and Bailey have found for doing this is to try and, it's through a system what they call block grants. In other words, uh, in other words um, involving local, often local state actors um, giving local communities um, a kind of security pot which they can decide um, how to spend um, as they see fit. Now, as stated at the outset, I think this model has various kinds of advantages in terms of involving a whole series of new actors in regulatory space and involving in the kind of uh, the encouragement of democratic participation in how that block grant gets spent, for example, but continues to do... Well, there's two features. One, it's entirely focused on um, buyers and not sellers. So there's a kind of unstated assumption that under this uh, communalised market, sellers will kind of come to the ball, if you like, um, and it continues to rest as a whole series of assumptions of a neoclassical kind about how markets um, work. How long have I got? Um, seven minutes I don't, I, I'm unlikely to need all seven. Okay, right. <laughs> Finally, um, we should be clear um, um, that in making this, this third proposal, um, we have no ambition to somehow kind of wipe the field clean. Um, So that we can entirely occupy it with this kind of new model of of regulating private security. Um, In many ways what we propose um, is an attempt to kind of keep in place and build upon some of the insights and regulatory regimes that have been generated um, on the back of what we're calling the cleansing and communalising approach. Um, But nonetheless um, we want to endeavour to provide a a model of regulating private security which is in some sense a genuine alternative and which has its ambition, um, as we put it, to civilise markets, by by which we mean an attempt to try and um, reap the benefits that private security can bring, as described at the outset, Um, but to try and um, situate private security in a regulatory space in such a way as it doesn't threaten the egalitarian project of providing equal perfection for all. And it in some way exists in a greater degree of um, alignment with the various kinds of non-market values, trust, solidarity, human rights... Um, which in various um, occasions private security can um, threaten. So the question is, how can you realign regulatory space in order to try and do that? And I'll just say a few words um, about that. Um, now, the first thing to say, and this is where my, my thinking on this has really been a product of this research project, which I, I'm going to just treat in the, place in the background for the moment, um, which has kind of changed the way in which I think we, we should think about how, how security markets um, work, um, and has developed... Um, in my mind, the idea that they are forms of moral economies, um, um, and I think this is true both among um, both among buyers, I and mean, we have various forms of evidence about the ways in which various, as I said at the outset, various kinds of non-market considerations to do with well, what effects will buying a GPS tracker have on my relationship to my children, or what does living in a gated community say about the relationship, about the kind of country I live in, about the, the, the kind of neighbourhood it is, and so on and so forth. So I could go on in chapter of verse on that. Perhaps more surprisingly, we also found that moral ambivalence about security um, among those who sell security. Um, So if you sit down, or if you read the trade press in the UK, or you sit down and talk to security sellers, um, two things become very apparent. Firstly is they will go on endlessly um, about how the industry is full of people who are sullying its reputation, about selling bad products, about not properly regulated, they're they're not charging a high enough price. Um, in other words, there's this kind of widespread recognition that, of course, it's never the person you're speaking to who's, who's making this claim, um, but that other people in the industry, industry um, are somehow tainting it. Um, so it's a slight stretch to say that this is in, an industry marked by self-loathing, um, but it, it is an industry marked by a remarkable degree of kind of um, ongoing critique of, the, of, the, of, of, of other players in the industry damaging its reputation. The other striking thing you find when you talk to people who sell the security industry is how often, or, or, how infrequently they use what you might call market-based legitimations to describe what they do. In other words, they, they rarely say we're generating wealth, we're providing jobs, we're doing all the kind of things that, that private private industry does. Instead, they borrow from other kinds of non-market legitimations. One of which, uh, there's many of which, we, which we describe in a recent paper. Um, one of which is to try and borrow the symbolic authority of the police. Um, um, in other words, you know, in terms of the uniforms, in terms of uh, in terms of um, t- t- um, making marketing use of police credentials, in terms of trying to f- you know, improve their relationships and so on and so forth, um, all of which suggests that, in all kinds of ways, that that moral ambivalence about the idea that security can be something that can be sold um, finds its way um, into the dispositions and sentiments and practices of the people who are engaged in um, selling it. Now, the lesson we draw from from that that finding is twofold. Firstly, that we shouldn't treat security markets and therefore the private security industry as just a form of standard consensual market exchange but instead as a form of social ordering. In other words, a practice of governance that is deeply implicated um, within um, modern forms of security and in some sense an ever present threat to a greater or lesser extent to security's modern democratic promise, the idea of equal protection for all. And that secondly... That If you think about the, the security industry as a form of moral economy, that the, the idea of regulation is no longer just about trying to impose something on that market from the outside, but trying to harness a series of sentiments that are already present among the buyers and sellers of these goods. And in other words, you can address um, the private security industry not simply as economic actors – I'm not trying to say they're not economic actors – but also as moral actors – now, what we draw from this um, is a model of, of what we describe as democratic guardianship, um, which is a model which seeks to somehow protect the I- the idea of equal equal the, of equal protection under conditions where security and policing is going to be provided by multiple providers. Um, and I don't I don't want to give you a chapter and verse on what this might look like, but I'll just say a few things just to to um, to uh, finish off. Firstly. Um, that our, model is a, our model is one which is, tries to involve both buyers and sellers, not just buyers or sellers in the other two. Um, secondly that it 's not a model principally organized around rules in other words we 've largely uh, moved beyond that kind of c- command and control conception of regulation towards one which isn't, which is, makes much more room for for principles for trying to find appropriate principles through which regulatory space can be structured. Um, now, there's a long discussion in, um, in the regulation literature about r- the effective worth of rules and principles, which I don't need to bore you with now. There is a, there is a time and a place and a space for rules, um, but rules also have a number of well-known um, disadvantages. They create perverse incentives, they, they encourage people who are subject to rule regimes they don't believe in to engage in forms of gaming... Uh, they could, the, 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 the appearance of rules being followed is very manufacture in certain forms that there's, a, there's 30 years of police sociology I could wheel out at this point to demonstrate that point. Um, um, and in that context, there seems to me to be space in how you regulate private security for trying to articulate, to trying to use principles as one of your regulatory tools. Now, the point about a principle, as John Braithwaite points out, is it stipulates a goal without telling those who are being regulated how, they, how are they to go about meeting that goal. And by so doing invites them to become participants in articulating how it is um, that that particular goal um, should actually be met. And that's essentially what principles do within regulatory space. They actually make those being regulated not simply the subject of regulatory control, but they try and involve them as partners um, in a regulatory um, conversation. Now in that context... Um, we could have a long um, discussion and no doubt disagreement about the appropriate principles that might one use um, for trying to um, civilise security markets. The suggestion we make in the paper is you might want to reorient regulatory space around two. Firstly, a principle of public deliberation. In other words, the idea that that, that regulatory actors are involved in trying to to foster and sustain an ongoing um, uh, public dialogue, not only about how this industry and how it's working... But about its appropriate reach and limits, and about the um, about the kind of meanings and sources of security, where the legitimate participants in that discussion are not just the people who buy and sell these goods and services, but all of us, as citizens. And secondly, a principle of solidarity, um, which is basically a way of saying that, that we need to find a kind of regulatory regime which attends to and makes central to what it does the kinds of distributional effects of markets in security devices and which treats the tracking and monitoring and, if necessary, the repair of those distributional injustices of part of what regulation is about. Now there's a final part of the paper, for those of you who've read it, in which we just try and sketch, and it's very much a rough guide, of how you might reconstitute a series of relationships inside regulatory space between the security industry and regulators, between the industry and police, involving the role of trade associations about how we might mobilise civil society. In which we kind of sketch how you might kind of reorient um, regulatory space in order to give effect to this principle of democratic guardianship, as we so call it. Um, But if you want to talk about that, we'll do it in discussion, and I'll stop there. So thank you.